Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Brian Sanders is the filmmaker behind the Food Lies documentary and is also an international speaker. Brian is the host of the incredibly successful and top five nutrition podcast, Peak Human. Peak Human is less of a podcast and more of a free audio lecture series with world-renowned doctors, scientists, and researchers exploring the the true proper human diet and lifestyle. Brian graduated from UCLA with a degree in mechanical engineering, but left his career to pursue his life passion of discovering health. He has become a prolific content creator in the world of nutrition. He works as a health coach at Evolve Healthcare and co-founded the health education company, Sapien, with his good friend, Dr. Gary Schiffler. The two of them also host a podcast with that same name, Sapien Podcast. Brian also works to spread the awareness of regenerative agriculture and increase access to well-raised animal products through his company, Nose to Tail. Brian, what an absolute honor to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Hey, Casey, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. It's so great to have you on. Um, How many years would we need to time travel back in time to hear that introduction and be completely stunned that your name was in front of it? (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so funny. Yeah, four years ago, I was just a guy who had a tech job and was doing nothing. Nothing. I, I had no social media. I mean, I guess I had a few, like 200 followers on Instagram from my personal friends and <laughs> nothing else going on. And uh, here we are today. That is so crazy. I can't believe how many different things you were involved with. It was very difficult to kind of narrow things down in the introduction to even explain what you do. Like if we were in an elevator together, how could you even tell me in 30 seconds what it is that you're doing now? Yeah, I try to do that all the time and I, I never know what to say to people. I try to read the room a little, you know, see where they're at. But I, I just say that I'm involved in health and, and healthy living and diet and lifestyle. And I I don't know, I see where I go from there. <laughs> I see if I should talk about, uh, you know, meat business, scare them away, <laughs> say that I, that I sell meat and I'm, a, you know, the big bad red meat or talk about making a film or, you know. So funny. I'm just now remembering the time that you were on stage um, talking about meat and health and in front of people that weren't necessarily um, in that field per se. Is that correct? Yeah, it was a plant-based conference. It was a food industry conference. It had all these big food industry professionals there from all the big companies you've heard of. And all the other presentations were about the future of fake meats. And it was, they had fake fish, they had fake this, fake that, like all the big people were there to talk about their fake products. And then I came on stage and I gave a whole history of why humans need to be eating animal foods, how it's healthy, how it's what we're designed to eat, how it's not bad for the environment and how it's very nutritious. And uh, it didn't, go over super well with most of the people. But afterwards, it was great because I hung around the conference and there was many people that would come to me personally like, hey, by the way, man, really support what you're doing. Good work. <laughs> That's amazing. That's definitely an away game for sure. Um, I wondered if they were all pitchforks and you know <laughs> torches at the end of the speech. That, oh, That's amazing. Well, I definitely want to hear your story and how you got to where you are. And we'll talk about some of the things that you're doing today. But before I do, I just want to say that I reached out to you before, since there was so many different topics to consider and things that we could talk about. And we'll spend the rest of the time talking about it. But I asked you if there was one thing that you definitely did not want to miss. And I'm just going to read word for word what you said and then give you an opportunity to answer that question. Why can't the world figure out what to eat? (laughs) It's so simple, right? And yes, it's just, why can't the world figure out what to eat? It's something I think about every day. I I think about it in a lot of different ways. It it kind of encapsulates my mission in life, right? It, It encapsulates everything. It's like, what's wrong with the world? And what is my mission? My mission in life is turned into clearing up that statement. Because it shouldn't be so confusing, yet it's become so confusing. And yes, this is a good framing for our entire discussion because it touches all the aspects from food industry to pharmaceuticals, to the healthcare system, to big food, to advertising, to the nutritionists and you know the schooling that they get, to what people should eat every day. Just people going to the grocery store. Everything is touched by this question. And why it's so confusing is because of all those industries I mentioned. It's mm. it's really about the money on the highest, highest level. It's become a trillion dollar industry. 
trillions and trillions. I mean, it's like almost one of the only industries there is, is feeding people and keeping them healthy is almost every industry, you know, every, almost every industry touches it. Mm. And, and so there's so much room for profit that everything gets skewed. And that's kind of just the rabbit holes I've been down in the past four years when I've been doing this full time. I've actually been at it for eight years just since I lost my parents and I turned 30 and I, I could, you know, couldn't really eat whatever I wanted anymore and had to start focusing on health. Um, but it, it always comes back to these big business decisions, big business lobby lobbyists, uh, money, advertising budgets, uh, everything. So, I mean, where do you even want to start? We could, we could choose any, any of those industries and I'll tell you how it really works, why it's confusing us and how it's affecting people's health. Wow. I mean, I, you, you mentioned money already. If I'm looking at this like a business, I want to have as many customers as possible. I want to keep them buying my products for as long as possible. And so if I can get somebody to live a very long life and keep them really sick and addicted to food in the meantime, well, that's just going to maximize my profits. Like it, that, if you're just looking at the business sense, that, that does make a lot of sense. It does. And it, it doesn't have to be like sort of evil either. So most people, 99% of people, I think are actually good people or they think they're good people. They're not like out there. It's not like there's a, the Monsanto CEO or Coca-Cola CEO is sitting there in a lair, like cackling over people being fat and sick. <laughs> you know, I'm like, ha I got them. I'm making more money off these dummies. It's more like, hey, I'm making a delicious product that people like to drink. And yeah, they should probably just drink it on occasion as a treat. And, you know, if you balance your calories, then it should be fine to drink my sugar water. That's how they think of it. Like, hey, I'm making a product that people enjoy. And if they balance their calories and they weren't such lazy slobs, everyone would be fit. So that's how they rationalize in their mind. But really, yes, it, it is about business. I don't think everyone's also like in cahoots to like have people live a long, miserable life addicted to foods. It's just kind of how the world works out sometimes. And everyone kind of played their own part in that. Mm -hmm. But really, each in each company's job is to make money for their shareholders. And, and it's, it's, it's almost like a, a added bonus. I think people think of it that way, where it's like, huh, we're, we could make some, make could make some money. And, or, or like, we're, we're providing you know, if you go to the pharmaceutical, it's like, oh yeah, we're helping people and we're making money. Or it's like, they always think, oh yeah. It's like they, they just always find a way to rationalize it. But when it comes down to it, they don't, none of these industries actually have your best health in mind. I think it's only the people on the, the smallest level instead of the highest level. So the people on the, the ground level are the ones that do have your health in mind. But the problem is that's not how the system works, right? So these big pharmaceutical companies, they don't have your health in mind, but maybe that, that doctor does. They think they're doing good, right? They, they do care, right? I'm not saying that doctors are bad or anything like that. They just have the wrong teaching. So they're out there getting all their information from pharmaceutical representatives or studies funded by pharma, all these different things. They're just trying to do the best they can. And the whole system is the problem. So I guess I'm saying big systems always kind of screw you. Big systems don't have your best interest in mind. They have profit in mind, but there's a lot of people in these systems that do care and they're just misinformed. Mm. And it's almost like over history, some of these things come in so slowly and gradually, you don't really pick up on them. I mean, a good example of this popped up on my on my Facebook from two years ago. It was two years ago today. I got murdered for this. You can you can just imagine the the you know the pushback I got on this. But I was at the store, and there was a family of three, and the the conveyor belt was loaded, loaded, loaded with quote unquote, let's say healthy foods, but it was like cauliflower that was already cellophane wrapped in cauliflower, then placed into a plastic bag that was then placed into another plastic bag and almond milk and all these products and keto, not keto, like vegan bars and things like that. And I'm like, and I'm standing there with like a pound of meat and that's like my food for the entire day. And it's like, so 
I'm I'm feeling pretty healthy, and I'm the one destroying the planet because I'm eating meat. What, look, where did all this come from? When did all this come from? It's insane. And that they were trying, like they they were trying to follow a healthy diet. Yep that that's a perfect illustration of the problem, and how backwards it was, and that's why it's so confusing. Because for all their life, they've heard that you have to eat a cornucopia of plant foods to be healthy. You need to eat the rainbow. You need to have all these whole grains, you need to eat fiber, you need to, all these things. These things aren't actually based on reality. <laughs> I, I wrote an article called Eating the Rainbow, Something Someone Randomly Made Up. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I think. It's, it's what I think is that now that we have airplanes and big cargo ships and we can get fruit shipped in for everywhere in the world and have Whole Foods grocery stores with a thousand different colors, then we think that that's necessary. And then I think people, a lot of the science almost backs into that <laughs> where we're trying to prove because it seems good. It's like, oh yeah, it seems so healthy to eat all this. And then we have all this, you know, bias studies being presented when it turns out, well, for one, it's a lot of epidemiology, but if you just look at the actual biochemistry and the actual sort of logic of evolutionary history, there is no requirement for eating like 30 colors of rainbow and different fruits and fibers every day. Logic. And that, What's that? you know what I mean? It's like, What's that? it's not. <laughs> and I think, I think we think fiber, fiber to me and fruits and vegetables in general, to me is just a proxy for eating less processed food. Mm. So this is another thing that I, I posted once and I, I'm really interested in, in looking into is yes, a lot of people who are healthy happen to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, but that doesn't mean they're healthy because they're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables necessarily. I don't think there's anything too wrong with them, but it's because if you fill up your diet with a whole bunch of whole foods and you're not eating all the processed trash, which is a real problem, then of course you're going to be healthy. And so that's why I'm saying it's a proxy. So like any study that we've done or any of this epidemiology, all this stuff, I think it just shows that yes, people who eat more whole foods are more healthy. Mm. That's what it shows to me. It doesn't say that fruits and vegetables and fiber and abundance is necessary. It shows that you are replacing your diet with better options. And yeah. Wow. and yeah, I think I think the real enemy is the seed oils, added sugar and refined grains. Those three ingredients which make up all processed foods are basically 80% of the problems of the world. And this is like 80% of people's diet. Mm -hmm. And then, and then meats and animal foods are the solution. These are the good foods. I also have this other little theory of mine. Pet, I have a lot of little pet theories, so I'll just try to spit them all out for you. Perfect. <laughs> but one of them is animal foods are a plus one. All those like sort of fruits and vegetables are a zero. And the processed foods, you know, the ones that it, have those three refined ingredients in them I listed are negative one. And if you look at anyone's diet, you could, you could basically do some math and be like, okay, how many plus one foods are you eating? How many neutral foods are you eating? How many negative one foods? And it kind of makes sense is whether they're healthy or not. Mm -hmm. And so all the good diets are either ones that include a lot of animal foods or some animal foods. And then, yeah, maybe some fruits and vegetables and all the other whole foods to some, some degree, they're just different versions of that. But I just think they're the, these sort of fruits and vegetables are basically just like sort of this neutral thing that just takes up space in your diet so you don't eat something worse. But that the real nutrition comes from the animal food side. Sure. Yeah, I mean, both of us have talked to Rob Stewart, who is an expert in skin, and we talked about the same things. Like, there are things that are actively going to be really good for you, and there are things that are actively going to be very bad for you. And I like, I like how you explain that equation. Some things are a little bit neutral, and I don't think anybody considers that a lot of those foods that you mentioned that are neutral, those are not supposed to be year-round available everywhere on the globe all the time. Like, that makes no sense. There's an apple tree that grows near my house, and right now I can pick an apple off it because this is the time of year when you get apples. Most people just walk into the store and there's always apples and that's the expectation because they don't know any different. 100%, 100%. And that's, yeah, what I was talking about, the modern shipping and modern everything and this modern viewpoint. And even with the anti-nutrients, you know, I talked to Rob about anti-nutrients. You probably talked to other people about it. They're not, I don't, that's what I'm saying. They're, they're not like a huge problem. Like, yeah, I got into 
some trouble. I think I was eating like spinach and kale shakes every day for a while. And then you're getting a load of antinutrients all the time. But that's unnatural, like you're saying. So if you have kale and spinach once in a while or just when it's in season, people may have done that in the past and they'd be fine because yeah, they have a lot of oxalates for you know a month and then their body will clear them all. So a lot of things that we're doing are just very unnatural in our world. Yeah. And and explain kind of time-wise when these things started to come online in any particular um, quantity um, as we look back in history. Like how old are vegetable oils? Have we always consumed them? They sound super healthy. I mean, they come from vegetables, uh-huh. right? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. If you want to talk timeline, I'll start earlier, is kale and spinach. We the, the All the modern cruciferous vegetables came from the wild mustard plant. And it was only... Actually, I, I don't know the timeline of this, but it was only uh, in the hundreds of years ago that these were all cultivated and crossbred and all the things that you can do with, with natural selection to, to become all these different plants, right? This It's not like human history of millions of years that goes back. We're talking about thousand years, hundred years when these were even existed. They even came into existence. Like the wild mustard plant is a stringy, tiny little plant that offers almost no calories. And yes, maybe, you know, our ancestors would gather a few of these and it's like, oh, great. We, we got a little side salad, you know, once in a while. This is not the bulk of our calories, but these, these all only came into existence in, in recent human history. So most of the foods we eat are actually very recent on the time scale. The, the ancient foods are meat, all the animal foods, and fruit, but the fruit was more, uh, you know, smaller, less sweet, you know, very different from the, the like giant apples we get today. And then the tubers, you know, there's other stuff like tubers have always been around and, and, you know, maybe some honey, which I think is fine. Have some tubers and honey if you want them and when appropriate, or if you're active like our ancestors. So, so that's, that's one big time scale that, people don't really think about that. This was a very recent thing. All these cornucopia of fruits and vegetables and, and done, then, and done deliberately, right? Like this wasn't like this it, mustard is not spontaneously growing everywhere in my neighborhood. This was done very, very deliberately by humans. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and it's magnified greatly. Uh, then, then we're talking about, yeah. Then when we get closer, I'm okay. Even sugar on this timeline, Sugar was super expensive, super hard to get up until, I don't know, 19 something. You know, yes, we had in the 1800s and yes, we have it even, even farther back, but it was very expensive and only the rich would have it. Okay, then, we're t- then the next big thing was the seed oils. So the seed oils really came into existence around 1918, 1912. I keep getting the dates wrong. 1912, I bet, I think is when the Crisco that sounds right. s- really started moving. So that's just a hundred years ago. So that I think was the biggest problem, the biggest change in our diet. And I think the biggest problem in our diet was this influx of polyunsaturated oils, especially the omega-6 that came only what, 109 years ago. And, you know, it started out as a machine lubricant and started out as a waste product from cotton seeds. And we use the cottonseed oil and then it went through the 16 step process to deodorize and, you know, do all these crazy things, hexane solvents and whatever to clean it out and make it somewhat human edible. And then, uh, of course they, you, you know, hydrogenated and made it into trans fats that we eventually found that were bad, but, um, we still don't really understand at all in the mainstream that just the high omega six industrial seed oils are maybe just almost as bad as those trans vets. That these are they're kind of causing the same problems. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned industrial oils. Have you ever watched the show um, How It's Made? I don't even know if they still do it anymore. Oh yeah. They, okay. Did you see the episode they did on canola oil? I did. You know, I used to watch it growing up, and then someone posted about it recently, and I saw it on YouTube. And it's insane. It's sludge. Gross, 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 gross. We've tagged that video probably five times since doing this podcast. It is disgusting to think that stuff is 
even on or around your body is one thing, but to put it inside of you is absolutely disgusting. It causes so many problems. I've heard you talk about this before, but can you mention where um, kind of grains became a little bit more mainstream? Like what happened in Michigan in like the 1860s that, that kind of started the cereal industry? Oh man. Yeah. Well, it started with, it started with LNG white and yeah, this was a whole seventh day Adventist story. So this is an interesting time in America where women didn't have a lot of rights. Men were like abusive alcoholics, kind of, uh, not all of them, but, uh, it was a problem and they didn't really know why they didn't have science like we do today. So a lot of people thought it was because of red meat. They're like, oh man, these guys, they just eat red meat and they get angry. And it's like this like primal food and, and that, you know, it'd be better if they didn't. And th this was kind of the theories that were going on back then. And uh, yeah, so this woman, Ellen G. White had visions and she thought that we should be eating a garden of Eden diet, which was pure and didn't have animal foods. And he, she actually influenced a young John Harvey Kellogg. Uh, eventually. And so, yeah, in the early 1900s is Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, all This is when all the Kellogg's cereal, this is where it came to be. And there was a lot of other, uh, I, well, they called it a sanitarium. They, they had a sanitarium where people would go to be, become clean, <laughs> to, to have like uh, sort of like a reset to a cleanse and they would be eating vegan foods and eating these plain foods. And John Harvey Kellogg thought that the eating plain foods and these corn flakes that he invented would help people become more clean. And he thought that, that it would tasty foods cause masturbation. Even they thought that this is, was the solution. And they just had all these crazy ideas back then. And this is when all the big cereal manufacturers popped up actually. I could tell stories about like Ansel Keys and people like, okay, that's a little weird. Um, I, I guess I get it. You know, I can talk about the Minnesota coronary uh, trial that they did where the data was buried in the, you know, the basement of the, the college for so long. And yeah, that's kind of weird. But when I tell people that story, I get so many people saying that that's not true. That cannot be true. <laughs> it's hilarious. Cereal is oh, yeah. anti-masturbation food. Totally. You can look it up. I, I love that it's kind of made in the mainstream. Like if you Google it, you can find all kinds of just sort of mainstream stories about this concept. Mm. Wow. We will make sure we tag that in the notes. Well, there was somebody who did seek to answer the same question that you asked and that I asked you at the beginning of this podcast. Why can't the world figure out what to eat? And this person was Weston A. Price. Can you talk a little bit about Weston A. Price, who he was and what his work was? Yeah, he's my favorite. And he I love him too because he actually started out sort of vegetarian. And he was a dentist in Ohio back in 1920s, 30s. When and he looked around and he said, you know, why why is everyone's teeth falling out? This doesn't make any sense. How this doesn't make evolutionary sense if people's teeth fell out in their, you know, 20s, 30s, even in their teens, how would they eat food and survive? And so he thought, I'm going to go around the world and study healthy cultures that haven't, yeah, that still have their, their dental health and their normal health and haven't been affected by modern foods. And he, he actually thought he was going to find a whole bunch of vegetarian societies. And what he found was the opposite, that he went around the world, he went to all these different places from the... Melanesian islands to the top of the Swiss Alps to Africa to Australia and found that they all had many even traditions and, and, and ceremonies around eating animal foods, especially while people were pregnant. So they all these very different country, cultures that had no contact with each other came to the same conclusions that they would all eat the nutrient-dense, most nutrient-dense animal foods, high fat, dairy, they would eat eggs, they would eat fish, seafood, organs of animals, bone marrow, all these, the most nutrient dense parts of the animal and all of these, especially around pregnancy, you know, they would like feed pregnant women, liver and organs and where the most nutrients are. So all around the world, all different cultures, no contact, they all came to the same conclusion. None of them were vegetarian, none of them were vegan. And what 
he found they all left out were those three ingredients I mentioned er earlier, sugar, flour, oil, sugar, refined grains, seed oils. They did not have these. And when they did have these, they lost their health. So he studied them for many years and he you know, come back and forth and he would go to different parts of the, the world and even different parts of that, uh, that cultures, like where they lived and the people who say lived farther from the ports and didn't have trade to get the sugar flour oil were fine. But then people who moved closer to the city and started having access to these foods, their health deteriorated quickly. So, and he also found a connection between dental health and overall health. And that it's not that sugar just rots your teeth. It's that a low nutrient diet with not a lot of fat soluble vitamins rots your teeth from the inside, basically, basically a lack of nutrition and fat soluble vitamins, which causes uh, deficiencies and health problems. So really great stuff. It all holds up with modern science. A lot of his stuff was proven out. Like he, he didn't know what, we didn't know what vitamin K2 was back then. He called it activator X, but later we found out that it was vitamin K2 and that it was this cofactor in vitamin D and fat soluble vitamins that, that helped, you know, make strong bones, strong teeth and, and strong people. <laughs> so yeah, his book is called nutrition and physical degeneration. I think everyone should read it. I think it should be required reading for anyone who wants to have kids. I just gifted it to my friends that uh, were having a baby. And uh, it's it's genius. Mm, yeah. I'm so glad it was written when it was after the invention of photography because there's so many amazing pictures and these jaws of big, beautiful teeth. And he did such an amazing job um, writing that book and there's a lot of content there, but you couldn't take his word for it. You had to actually journey out and do the same thing. Can you tell us a little bit about your Africa trip? Oh yeah. I'm trying to recreate his uh, journeys. Now I went with uh, Mary Ruddick, who's great, who I interviewed on my show a couple of times. And she has been to more of the places that he's gone. And also she's trying to go to the blue zones too, which um, is a whole nother story, which are, e are kind of easily debunked um, that they weren't actually vegetarian. They ate a lot of meat. Uh, there's a lot to that, but we went to Tanzania and Uganda and this was for the Food Lies film. We spent time with the Hadza, the Maasai, and the Pygmies, which are the Batwa in Uganda. And yeah, this was in February. And so we filmed with them and we spent time with them. We hunted with them. And it was pretty amazing, really, to see this firsthand. The Maasai, um, man, yeah, they're just tall, strong, athletic, great teeth, healthy. I mean, they're just living life to the fullest. And, but you know, it was interesting. We saw the ones in a city. We were, we were in Arusha, which is the airport you could fly into next to Mount Kilimanjaro. And it's not super close actually, but this is where we saw the city Maasai and the city Maasai did not look so good. They kind of had messed up teeth and were shorter. And they, a lot of them were very overweight, stuff like that. And you can see as the, uh, the farther you went out into the, the outskirts and the little villages, the healthier they were and the more natural they lived, the healthier they were. And the Messiah are famous for the men, at least for a large portion of life living on blood, meat, and milk only. And so we got to do this with them one morning. Well, we tried a couple of times. Uh, it's kind of a long story, but the, the successful time was one morning we went into their little pen. They make they have all their cattle in a pen and they make it just out of thorny branches. So they just make put, pile a bunch of thorny branches in a circle. And then all of their huts are built around in an outer circle. So that the core of their little, little tiny village is the cattle, their prized possession. We went in there and they, we, we grabbed a tin bucket, you know, like a little tin uh, bowl and they got some fresh raw milk. And then we grabbed a different cow and they put a little, they have this arrow technique and they hit the, the vein, the jugular vein, and they just prick it. And then blood shoots out and we collected it in that metal bowl with wow. the milk and you mix it around and then everyone drinks it and everyone took a turn. Like this was their meal. I mean, we were there to do it with them, but I mean, that was just their breakfast. And for us, it was just this amazing experience. And we, you know, we had, we tried it. It tasted 
pretty good. I think I, I didn't taste bad for it wasn't like really irony or, or the the milk was nice. It kind of made it more, you know, normal. It's like a, it's kind of like a milkshake. Wow. And I don't know. It was it was amazing. And then they patch up the little wounds with some mud, and the the, the cow or the steer goes about its day and <laughs> is fine. You know, it's just like a human drawing a little blood. Wow. Yeah. Mary was describing it too and said that cows weren't distracted in the least. Like it didn't bother them at all. What an amazing experience. And you were right. You definitely went in there with the attitude of doing it with them because you ate some pretty interesting things on that trip. Well, yeah. Also the Hadza, we, we ate the liver raw. We, um, they got an animal, they opened it up. And within a few minutes we were eating raw liver with all kinds of intestinal juices uh, all over it. (laughs) And, um, with the Maasai, yeah, we, we, they butchered a goat for us and we drank the goat's blood just raw. And then they made a soup out of all the insides, the contents of the stomach, the, the rectum, everything basically. Yeah. Basically, I don't know if you're referring to this, but I drank the poop soup. <laughs> yeah, I heard it that. was pretty wild. Like it was like this, they, they boiled it for three hours and it was this brown soup and it tastes like diarrhea, oh, but, dear. uh, <laughs> Apparently it was something that they think is healthy, but you know, me and Mary and I theorized that it, it was giving them a lot of nutrients because it had a, a lot of all the organs and weird stuff, like just sort of the non-edible organs and also just this microbiome feast really, right? It was, I think it's how they maybe uh, even counteract some of the parasites because it had a certain root in it too, that was sort of anti-parasitic and, Maybe just just balancing out all these different gut bugs. Mm, wow. Okay, so sitting outside of Salt Lake City right now, I know exactly how the rest of the trip went. You found these savage tribes up in the mountains. They know nothing about you know government and civilization, and so you ran in there, threw them a few Bibles, taught them how to farm, and they became much better for it. They stopped dying at thirty. We all know the you know lifespan is thirty years old, and they dropped dead, and they weren't very happy, and they don't they don't enjoy life very much. Is that kind of the case? <laughs> That's so funny. I think they were doing the teaching. They were they were basically teaching us how to be the opposite of all that. How like basically you're describing more Americans and modern people and how we live. And it's funny that we sort of project that onto these people, right? We project this onto them as that they are the savage ones. They are the uneducated dummies. And what we found was the exact opposite is yeah we asked them mary was really good about asking all the questions and sitting down with a lot of the women and saying hey do you ever have menstrual pain they're like what are you talking about like hey do you do you is your pregnancy hard what no it's super easy do you do you have back pains like no what are you talking about do you have do your knees hurt really i ask an old lady do your knees hurt do your joints ever hurt like no what are you talking about like every they just were like what are what are you guys talking about like we have none of these things and this is all what normal Americans experience starting from, you know, 30, 40, they're, everyone's complaining about this and that. We, we asked them about all these things and they did not have it. And there was a lady uh, who, well, I think we now figured out she's about 105. At first we thought she was 120. I think they got some of the, the translating wrong, but she was 105 is our newest a hard number we got because we've been communicating with the guides and she, this was a member of the Botwell community in Uganda and she was dancing around, jumping, jumping and dancing at 105. <laughs> she had a daughter that was probably in her late eighties and she was jumping and dancing around and they had six generations represented. It wasn't a direct line of six generations, but they had six generations represented in this village <laughs> down to like a you know toddler one and a half year olds and wow. uh so yeah they were the ones teaching us man i love that story and it it's so put it into perspective when you talk about this older lady dancing like that's one thing but then to say she's dancing with her daughter that's like high 80s early 90s like wow that's <laughs> quite the sight it's wild that's it was so wild yeah <laughs> crazy. I just love the concept of like, they sing and they dance and they don't really have much of a concept of time. They don't really worry about too much. Just every day provides what they need. And then they have leisure built into it. I mean, you're right. Like we have done the exact opposite 
with our culture. And then it's kind of cool as you were going through all these different tribes and different stages of, you know, where they were, where they were getting their food, what they were trading for. You got to see kind of the gradual descent in overall health as, as you know, vegetable oil is being introduced. It's not really affecting those people, but these people it's starting to affect, right? Was it, was it kind of like a, like a time travel for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so we went deep in the, the bush and it wasn't exactly the bush. I guess it with the Hadza, it was the bush. And then we came back out and, and then we would stop by different places on the outskirts and the smaller villages. And we stopped by a, a farming type of village. And we had, we got a, a bunch of the elders together. We had our guides help organize this. And so it was a bunch of the elders from this farming village and they were like, not doing well. Like it was, it was a stark difference from the healthy older people that we saw right in the, in the tribal settings out in the middle of nowhere. And then as you get further towards reality, people were doing worse. So in this step two transition towards the city, we saw older people just really hunched over, creaking around, bad knees and pain. They, a lot of complaints there, you know, it, we had to end early. They were complaining. They're tired. They were, it was just a whole different level of health, bad teeth. And this group was really reliant on just plant foods as the base of their diet. And they were very into their ugali. And this was like this, you know, just corn paste, just slop. And they're just eating bananas and whatever they could get their hands on, just farmed goods. And they weren't doing well at all. And then we went fully back into the city. And now I'm referring to Uganda specifically because we went to the market and it was more noticeable in Uganda in the market. So their village market or city market, whatever you want to call it, you know, open air market, right? This is where they got their food. They didn't get their food at a grocery store. Like there were a few stores for tourists basically, but these people did not buy food from stores. That's not what they did. They could not afford that. There was no fast food there. There was none of this stuff. So it was really interesting though to see that everyone was doing well. Everyone under a certain age looked okay because, well, you can get away with more things when you're younger and they didn't have the real, they, you don't see the ill effects of these, the, the seed oils basically is what I'm about to say, is they did not have junk food. They did not have a whole bunch of sodas and sugar. They did have some refined grains, but they were more natural but they did have these seed oils and they had jars and jugs of all these seed oils that started coming in. And guess what? They also had a whole bunch of people over the age of 45 that were obese. Mm. And I, and I, I mentioned the part about they didn't have fast food. They didn't have a bunch of sodas. They were not sedentary. These, these women were, you know, hauling all their goods around the market and, you know, being outside all day, moving around but they had all these seed oils. And I think that that was just a big kind of wake up call for me. Seeing it happen is just the, the way health changes, how it takes a long time for one thing, for these changes to take place. I mean, talking about throughout Africa, the, the younger people were doing fine. They were not obese. Actually, there was like no COVID there too. Like the, the president decided to just not do anything and no one, they didn't tell him about it and no one knew it. And there, everyone was just fine. And we went to hospitals and they're empty and mm. went to clinics and they were empty. And I mean, they're just a bunch, that's it's a whole nother story, but they were also pretty healthy. So maybe that's why. Mm. And, but then when they started getting really old, like I said, with the farming people, then they started having all the problems. So I'm saying is once you get closer to the city, people were having more problems at a way younger age. And there was, there was no obese people until the city. So the first obese people we saw were these usually women, but I, I think the men weren't, they weren't even there. I think they were at home or doing something else. But uh, I did see men with giant bellies actually. Mm. But a lot of these like very, very obese women and they were just eating basically whole foods, some, some processed grains and some seed oils. Mm, wow. And so, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it's just, you can see the progression and you can also see the progression of what was going to happen in the next 20 years. Sure. Right. Like they're just going to turn into America. 
I was just going to say, just wait till you land back at home and know exactly what's going to happen. It's almost like people are riding around on jazzies more than they're walking these days. It's, it's nuts. Mm-hmm. Totally crazy. What, what, a, what an amazing trip. Like, what was your biggest takeaway from that trip that, that maybe will change your life forever moving forward? Well, I think the one was just the seed oil thing that that really got me thinking that it wasn't the fast food. You can't blame it on all the other factors. I really think it was the seed oils for that those obese people in the city, and that, and also I guess the second half is seeing firsthand what what goes on and how people can live in different ways and see the outcomes when they're say eighty to ninety, right? So people you know, you can read all the books you want and, and it's so hard for people to make changes, right? If you're just a random 30 year old dude, you're just like, yeah, whatever. I like to go to McDonald's. I like to have beers on the weekends. It's hard to make it click in your head. So going to Africa, seeing it firsthand was really valuable. I think to see really the living proof of what can happen when you live in different ways. Wow. That's amazing. You said you were doing this for your documentary, which is called Food Lies, which you've been working on for a minute now. Can you tell us a little bit about when you decided you wanted to make a movie and what you, what kind of storyline you wanted to tell? Yeah, well, I mentioned my parents. So losing my parents is a big wake-up call. We were eating the food pyramid our whole life. We were not going out to fast food very often. I remember fast food was a very big treat. We were always like trying to save money, make our own food. So we were... Theoretically, doing all the right things. Yet, my parents were not that old and succumbed to Alzheimer's and cancer. And this, so, I mean, that's really the main reason why I'm doing all of this is how to not fall to the same fate, how to teach people about, yeah, what to eat and why they don't have to fall to the same fate, why it's not genetic, why I completely turned my health around. Uh, in those first four years after I turned 30 and how simple it was really. It was straightforward. It wasn't like I was counting counting calories or doing any wacky diets. All I did was remove the processed grains and sugar from my diet in the first few years. That's all I did. And I just replaced it with just, I don't know, I just like sauteed onions and mushrooms instead of eating like bread. And Massive improvements. My whole body composition changed. My health got better. I stopped getting sick. I stopped having joint problems. I stopped having allergies, even stopped having uh, like kind of heartburn. Everything just went away, just with simple changes. And and then eventually getting out. So I I inadvertently got out a lot of seed oils by stopping the processed foods. And then I learned more about the seed oils and got rid of those and have been doing uh, even better since. So basically, just want to tell the story to the world, show them the real actual science on nutrition, including with the whole evolutionary context, including with Africa, including the bad science that was done that you alluded to, Ansel Keys and like all these other bogus experiments that done the new science that was either uncovered or uh, was done later that we now have to show that saturated fat is not bad for you. Cholesterol does not just like go and clog your arteries, that meat is not a carcinogen. Uh, we're still trying to do a lot of these studies. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the roadmap of the film catching us up to modern day. And then we, we go to the last stage, which is, well, how do we do this and help the environment, right? And well, or at least not hurt the environment. And the answer is regenerative agriculture. And so that's what I'm really into. We've gone to a lot of uh, regenerative ranches and just keeping animals on the land, you know, letting them eat grass for their whole life instead of going to a feedlot, raising chickens and pigs, even on pasture. Uh, I think that's the solution that does not have a negative impact to the environment. It actually helps. It helps put carbon back in the soil. Uh, it helps so many things. Yeah, more nutrients in the soil, more carrying capacity of water in the soil. A lot of problems is we have rain and then it just runs off and then runs off the dirt. You don't have to use the pesticides. There's so many things. I could go on for hours about this stuff, but we, we kind of recap, not recap, but uh, give a high level view of all of this at the end of the film. And 
and just in general, I think everyone should be interested in this and move towards this um, because, I mean, it's just, it's like sort of just a win, 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 right? It's like you, you get healthier food, you get a healthier life and you can, you can help them, you know, us go back to better, better ways of growing food. I think that's, it's what it's all about is how do we, people ask how we feed the world. And they, a lot of the solutions, the fake solutions are with fake foods and fake meats and all these stupid things, added fossil fuel fertilizers, added this, added that. It's so bogus. How to feed the world is for one, going back to the way things were used to, we used to do things, going back to nature's harmonious cycles and systems. And two, feeding your community. You don't feed the world by just shipping out sacks of grains to everyone in the world. That's terrible for so many reasons. It disrupts economies even. like if It ruins people's health. It's just not nutritious. And everything wrong is wrong with it. Mm. But how you feed the world is you feed your community. And if everyone feeds their own community, then guess what you just did? You just fed the world. Man, I love that. So much looking forward to that documentary coming out. Um, you mentioned regenerative agriculture, which now you're also in the business in with Nose to Tell. Can you tell us um, about that company and some of the things that you offer there? Yeah, so after a couple of years of making no money and being broke and trying to make this documentary, I realized that this is something I really believe in. So I started nosetotail.org. And it's kind of like ButcherBox, but basically, yeah, we just get meat out to people. We ship it to them and it's all regeneratively grown. We just switched over before it was all grass fed, grass finished. And like, you know, it had all the, the, the best we could offer the time. But now as of last Friday, we, uh, so by the time you hear this, it might be well up and running. Uh, we have all new great ranchers here in Texas doing regenerative practices, the holistic management. Uh, my beef ranchers took Alan Savory's holistic management courses back in the late eighties, way back in the day when he first started and uh just really great stuff going on here in texas so yeah check it out yeah that's amazing we'll be sure to link to that in the notes one of the things that i really wanted to be sure to do is to thank you personally for doing the peak human podcast um as i was you know getting certified as a health coach and kind of learning that the standard advice and the things that I was being told was not really working very well for people. Um, podcasting was a way for me to learn new and different things out there. And yours is one that I've listened to every single one from the very, very beginning, multiple times. Um, I, I shared with you recently, we now have shared 23 different guests and mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had mm -hmm. the opportunity to even get to know some of these people. Mickey Bendor, Tucker Goodrich, uh, Nicolette Nyman, like all of these wonderful people that we've been able to share Nina, I got to talk to Nina. I couldn't even get oh, through wow. the introduction without choking up. It meant so much to me. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that came from you and your podcast. So um, thank you for doing it. And I, I'm just curious, like, what has that journey meant to you personally? Oh, man, it's been a dream. Yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, a lot of people have told me they, they have started back at episode one. I really encourage people to do that because it, I put in so much hard work and and just blood, sweat, and tears in this podcast over the years that I really think it's valuable for people to listen to them all. And yeah, it means a lot that, that you do appreciate it. I'm glad that people do realize, you know, how much work has been put into it. And I mean, I, I just started getting access to these great people that you mentioned through making the film. And, you know, they've been so kind to just do do another interview with me or even multiple ones since to... Uh, go deeper than we could do in in the film interview, and I've learned so much over the years. I mean, it's 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 almost like a uh, like uh, like uh, I don't want to say selfish, but it's so interesting how it's like it's so cool that I've been to able to go on this journey so I could learn, right? And that's what I'm saying. It's this kind of selfish part. It's like I get to talk to all these great people, but then I get to you know share it with the rest of the world. So it's been, yeah, it's just been really valuable and rewarding for me to just 
talk to these great people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I We always decided that if we were going to do a podcast, if I was going to be the only one to listen to it, that would be perfectly okay. And you're right, it's weird. It just reaches out to the world and people find it. And you know, somebody has a question about the structure of the foot. Well, we have that skincare. Well, we can share that with you. It's really cool. I'm curious to know um, what you recall your initial expectations for the podcast and how that's kind of evolved over time. Uh yeah, I've always been interested in podcasting. And I was actually in my tech days, I was trying to start a podcasting app and trying to do something better than what Apple was doing. And yeah, I mean, I did spend a lot of years kind of getting into the pot, like figuring out that world. So I kind of had some things figured out, but it is, it's a really hard thing to do and hard to start and how to, hard to build an audience and hard to even just develop the skill set of doing it. And well, I don't know. I, I guess I just learned along the way. Uh, you have to grind through it. You have to stay motivated. A lot of times it seems like it's not worth it. And I I, I kind of help out a lot of new podcasters these days just for fun. And I, they all, all kind of have the same problems. It's like you, you just, it's so hard to get listeners. And I get it. It's, there's so many podcasts out there, but what's been the best for me or, and you know, just the biggest surprises and all this is it, it, it just how well it can turn out. Well, you have to have more going on, I think, than just, you have to, it has to be a bigger vision. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And having a film and the podcast and just everything I'm doing is trying to lead towards a bigger vision. That's what I think has made it so successful. Mm. Wow. I recently just launched our second podcast and I named it the how to make a podcast podcast. <laughs> mm. And I, I couldn't find resources out there either that really went through exactly the process this is how you conduct an interview, how you find people, here's how you edit or, you know, what hosting software is. And I dropped some of that. Um, to, to kind of help people along as well. It is, it is a long process. I always laugh when people ask like how much money we make doing podcasts. Like <laughs> that's good, buddy. Like <laughs> we lose mm -hmm. a lot of money doing podcasts. Um, yeah. it's crazy. Part of, part of what I did in one of those episodes, I played a clip from our first episode, episode number one, and it was atrocious, dude. It was so, so bad. And you recommend people going back to your show and start at episode one, which I've done recently. And even from the beginning, you had it really well nailed. That was a really fun conversation with you and some of your friends that you followed up with in episode 10, but you're, you got a lot of things right from the beginning. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I attribute that to, yeah kind of few years before I started that I, I got acquainted with how to make a podcast and all that. But, uh, well, I'm also proud that I, I have been on track. I'm not saying maybe I, I was the best interviewer back then, or, you know, maybe I think I said like a lot back then. And I, and I actually went in and edited it so that I, for what that made me stop saying, like by listening to myself saying, like I, I, I was, saying to myself, I will never do this anymore. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'm glad that I had the same sort of thoughts. I think I've, I've evolved a bit, but I've also not wildly changed like a lot of people do in the nutrition world that just jump on a new bandwagon. I never jumped on any bandwagon. Yeah. No, you were really conscious of that. That was actually something I wanted to ask you. It's funny. I sit next to a post a note that says, um, to remind myself not to say, um, 65 thousand times an episode. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it, I, I think there's a really important life skill in there that works with podcasts, but also diet lifestyle. Anything in life is, is, you know, you, you started, you didn't have maybe the perfect process. You learned along the way you stayed true to what your why was for doing the documentary, for doing the podcast, like you said. And you know, if you just start down that journey, if you just start with one meal, try eating a little better than you did yesterday, you will learn along the way and you'll get better at it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to stick with it. That's, that's really it. But, and that's why I said, you have to have a bigger vision because I see a lot of people who just want to do a podcast but that's all they have. They don't stick to it because there's no bigger vision. But it, you know, if you're a health coach and then you, you know you, you have, it'll keep you going if you have more, you know, reasons to keep you going. Because it, yeah, it definitely isn't about money. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so on your first episode, and again, the follow-up on episode 10, which I highly recommend, you're talking to your friends, like we said, they're more plant-based, and you're having a discussion. And I think throughout your podcasting journey, you've had people on that you have agreed with, and you have also had people on that you have not agreed with. And I remember talking to you at Low Carb um, Denver 2020, and we were mentioning an episode that you just did where you really did not disagree with, you didn't agree with what this person was saying. And I think you mentioned like, yeah, I should have pushed back on it a little bit more. And I said, dude, I don't know. I, I appreciate people who can, you know, disagree, but stay agreeable. And I'd love for you to explain kind of the importance of communication in a way that even if we don't all think the same way that we can still have a positive outcome and a good discussion. Mm, yeah. I think, well, it's, it's a huge life skill and a huge need in general these days. I think the world is dividing and I think that's kind of the plan <laughs> is to pit people against each other. And I think the solution is to not fall for this where we need to have sides. We need to be political enemies that, we need to be vegans versus carnivores that you don't really accomplish much except fall into the traps and become controlled more easily and just have a worse quality of life. And all the bad things come from that. But if you can see eye to eye with someone, if that that's what empathy is really is, is seeing other people. Right. And, and so it's like, not only is it great to just, learn about a subject like nutrition by looking at both sides and, and having these kind of talks is you can become a better person this way. And you can talk to friends who have different political views and you can still get along with them because it's about more about the, the journey of learning and, or finding truth instead of being right or trying to prove your point. And a lot of people just don't get that. And I, and I think these are very just sort of disagreeable type of people that I don't care for. And that I find myself, you know, having great friendships and all this type of stuff with people who are open-minded, they are critical thinkers and they can talk about both sides of an issue because that's how they learn. And these are the smart people. Maybe I'm only friends with smart people and maybe that's my self-selection of finding people that are smart. And I think part of the definition of being smart or intelligent is that you want to prove yourself wrong or you can see both sides or you can you want to prove yourself wrong because that strengthens your argument mm. and i've learned a lot by looking at other sides of nutrition and being open to it mm. and yeah that's why i am still evolving but it's still kind of centered around the same beliefs and i i think it's yeah well i shouldn't even said beliefs i think it's not good to have beliefs it's more it's more like you have you know, an idea, like everything should be a working hypothesis. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that I'm all, it's like everything that I, that I believe in, in the nutrition world is a working hypothesis. So if it comes out tomorrow that there was a fake meat that actually was healthier I mean, maybe I'd have to investigate that and see how, how does that work and why does that work? And you know what? What new science has led to this? But I'm not just automatically going to say that I know something or that this is my belief forever. Mm. Well, I mean, I just have to say for myself, and you know, for the people that I know that I've recommended your show to, I just there, there's there's been. I don't know, hundreds of podcast series that I have subscribed to and unsubscribed to because things became confrontational and really uncomfortable. And for, for years now, I, I don't miss an episode of your podcast, PQ, and I really love it. And I love your approach. So I hope you continue to do it that way. I'm also really happy that you use the word proud and that you are very proud of your work and your content. And you recognize that because it does help a lot of people uh, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm just wondering if you had to distill this conversation down to one simple thing for the listener, what do you think that would be? Mm. Well, I, well, hmm. I always just go back to eating real food. I mean, that's, it's not like what the conversation was, but that, that is my nutrition philosophy outcome of everything we talked about would be 
just if you're eating real food, and to me, that also implies a lot of animal foods, <laughs> then you're fine, right? We talked about all the bad, you know, processed foods and this and that. It, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's as simple as that. It's just I have to have 138 episodes of pod, of my podcast and make a whole film about teaching people why that's the case and why this simple concept is so lost. Well, we really appreciate you and your work and for answering that question that we asked at the very beginning. I love that. Just eat whole food. Brian Sanders, amazing conversation. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah, I'm at Food Lies on any social media. Just search for Food Lies and then you can go to staping.org and click through there to find all my other projects like the film, Nose of Tail and Sapien. That's awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Brian, thank you so very much for all of your work, for everything that you've done, for being willing to talk on stages, um, create so much content that's really helpful. And and again, I mean, if nothing else, Peak Human is just a wonderful podcast and we're so grateful for that. So thank you very much for everything that you do and everything that you stand for. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on to our show today. It's really an honor. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.